Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Back to Brexit. Are we finally approaching the endgame? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. In a moment, we're going to hear from Helen and Chris. But first, we wanted to check in with Kenneth Armstrong, who is our resident expert on European law. And appropriately or ironically, he is in Brussels this week. So we asked him to give us some thoughts on his phone, and here I am on my phone, letting you know that after Kenneth, it'll be Helen and Chris. A short extension in the face of a, a rejection of the, the withdrawal agreement, I'm not sure is really going to do anything other than push back the cliff edge. The vote that I think that was more significant on Wednesday was the significant vote against the Labour amendment on its alternative vision for the future relationship based on a customs union uh, regulatory alignment with the single market, etc. That then suggests that what we still only really have in play is some version of the Prime Minister's uh, deal and whether that can, at some point, command a, a majority. I, I've been in Brussels this week and one of the things that somebody said to me yesterday is that this was all supposed to be the easy part of things and the real negotiations were yet to come in terms of negotiating the, the future relationship which was to happen once the, the, the UK leaves. Now given that MPs have rejected the Prime Minister's version of that so far given that MPs have also rejected the Labour alternative vision of what that looks like, given that they've also said that they don't want a, a no-deal Brexit, it's not completely obvious that there is a, a consensus that will then help drive those negotiations forward. And that's very, very risky. Helen Thompson and Chris Bickerton with me. As you just heard, Kenneth Armstrong is in Brussels. Let's just pick up on a couple of the things that Kenneth said there. So we, we've still got this question about sequencing. I, I mean, I think Theresa May, in a way, this week has had a kind of minor victory in that she has at least got the sequence so that nothing definitive about what the Cooper Amendment was pushing for has been established, simply that there will be a vote on a possible extension after there's been a vote on no deal, after there's been a vote on her deal. So her deal would have to fall, then no deal would have to fall. And I think we can take it for granted that no deal would fall. The Commons is not going to support no deal. But we still don't know then what the terms of the vote for an extension would be. And there is this question, and Kenneth touched on it, which is there's a case for a short extension if her deal passes, but it's not clear that there's a case for a short extension if her deal falls. And it's at least possible, presumably, that the EU would reject a short extension. So if her deal passes, it passes. Maybe we'll come back to that. But if her deal falls and no deal falls, what are the terms of the vote for an extension? What is the case for an extension? There has to be, I think, if you listen to what some of the EU member states are saying, 
It has to be based on something other than a desire to continue negotiating what is currently being negotiated or has been negotiated but was then rejected. So something new from the British side, a concrete demand, which would be, for instance, we need to extend Article 50 in order to give us enough time to arrange a second referendum. Given what somebody like Donald Tusk has said in the past, I'm sure that would be received favourably. Although that would be more than three months. Problems about how long it is are to do with the European parliamentary elections. Uh, It complicates things. At the moment, it just seems to be that it can't be an extension just to keep trying to push at what we're currently discussing. That seems to be the thing. What it would be for would be something different, something new, something uh, concrete. So so the thought that, given what Theresa May has wanted all along, is not to take no deal off the table in the hope of forcing her deal through with that as the background threat... And there's an indication that she still thinks that she has achieved that because a three-month extension simply gives you a cliff edge that's three months ahead and is in some ways a sharper one. But if that isn't actually realistic, is it still the case that she can, next week or the week after, go into the vote on her deal with this looming threat of the possibility that the cliff edge is still there? I think the cliff edge is still there because you've got to have an agreement in Parliament if we got to the third vote about what the extension would be for. It's pretty clear that there isn't a majority in Parliament for a second referendum. So if you're going to say you have an extension for a second referendum, why is the non-majority for a second referendum going to mobilise for that end? So then there comes the question about whether you could say that we're going to have an extension for a general election. It's far from clear if you listen to what not just Macron, but what the Spanish Prime Minister has been saying, that that actually would meet the criteria for a substantial change in the British position. Given the possibility that a general election returns a similarly configured parliament. Not only just that, is is if you're Macron and the Spanish Prime Minister, you need at least one party who you would believe in that general election is going to be committed to a second referendum in its manifesto. The independent group? I don't think that's going to persuade them that that's a realistic... It all hangs on Chaka Umana's ability to... It's not going to persuade them that they're an alternative government. So there's still a question of, like, okay, what is Corbyn-led Labour's intention on a... On a second referendum, and it's going to be extremely difficult, I think, to put a straightforward commitment to a second referendum into a Labour manifesto, so long as Jeremy Corbyn is leader of the party. But I've said this before in this podcast, I still find it hard to believe that the EU would turn down a request for an extension with the reason giving to hold an election. I think they could. I mean, particularly given that the opinion seems to be hardening, and even if it said that they would in principle, they will want to extract a price for it. Chris, do you have a sense that opinion is hardening? I mean, Macron, so Macron's had a little, we haven't talked about him for a while, he's had a little bounce, he's had a good couple of weeks, he seems to have got a little bit of confidence back. He's certainly more visible in this than he was a month ago. And he's made it clear that he's prepared potentially to take a tough line on this. Yep, the Macron mojo is back. I mean, he can say these things. I mean, if you listen to what he said very recently, the message that came alongside him from Angela Merkel was rather different, much more sort of um, pragmatic, willing to cut the Brits more slack, much less uh, stricter out uh, extending Article 50. I think he can talk that talk. I think overall, there is probably a lot of frustration on the EU side about where things are going. And the idea of extending Article 50 for, even if it's just for a short period of time, simply to 
have more of the same. That, I think, probably won't get that far. However, I don't know what, you know, there are not that many alternatives for the EU. I mean, not extending really is quite a dramatic move to make. And if there's a sense that things are slowly, slowly working towards some sort of conclusion on the British side, then I think there would be a willingness to extend. What's happened with May, I think, is that even if, and I think probably I agree with Helen about no deal, for May, if she's trying to get basically her hardline Brexiters within her party to vote for her deal, if that's still the kind of dominant approach that she's taking, no deal can sort of uh, sharpen minds on the other side, but no Brexit or extending Article 50 in ways that opens up possibilities that are very difficult to pin down. That's not a very attractive prospect. So I think what she's managed to do, and the way she's sequenced things, is that she has focused minds around the fact that the alternatives are not so much her deal or no deal, but it's her deal or some unravelling of this process that leads us into uncharted territories. And for Brexiters, that's pretty compelling. I think as well... The other progress that she's made um, this week is is that the ERG, although that it sort of abstained en masse and some of them actually voted against the government last night, is there are clear divisions between them and that Jacob Rees-Mogg is moving further and further away from the position which he started. The position which he started was, was that any number of things wrong with the withdrawal agreement. By the time we got to the Brady Amendment, that was the backstop that was wrong with the withdrawal agreement and needed to be withdrawn. But what he's been saying in the last 48 hours or so is, is uh, as long as there was some kind of codicil protocol that made it clear that the backstop was not permanent and had no risk of permanence um, to it, then he could swallow it. Now, I don't think he can bring along everybody in the ERG because there are clearly people in the ERG who, who on principle, want a no deal. But if she can succeed in pulling off enough of the ERG, plus she gets to the point where these Labour MPs who've been quite quiet about what their position is, but absolutely clearly do not want to support a second referendum, have to make their choice, then you start to see a parliamentary majority take shape. I think the other crucial thing to to bear in mind is, is if she can get to the position where Geoffrey Cox changes his legal judgment about the backstop, then you've got the possibility maybe of getting the DUP back as well. And at that point, really, you can see a parliamentary majority. So it seems to me the risk with her strategy, you can see what she's doing, and she has successfully managed, because she's got to, as it were, like Chris was saying, threaten the no-deal people with no Brexit and threaten the no-Brexit people with no deal. And by sequencing it this way, she's left that open, at least plausibly. Each of those threats are still there. No deal is still just about there as a threat. No Brexit is still there as a threat. But the problem is, because what would an extension mean is still a very open question, people can project onto the third vote, the extension vote, some quite fantastical possibilities. So there is a risk that both the ERG will think, well, actually, that extension vote is just going to bring the cliff edge into view. And people on the other side can think that extension vote will be a meaningful opportunity to create the conditions for a second referendum. So we still, I know I've said this so many times, but we still, three has not become two yet. There's a caveat to what you've just said, though, which is is that in terms of asking for an extension and Parliament playing a role in asking for that extension, it's going to be having an extension for a specified period of time. And so you can't project onto Parliament asking for an extension that's beyond three months the idea that this somehow keeps no deal still there as a, as a possibility. Because, because so once it goes beyond the, the European elections, it's effectively saying we are going to rethink this yeah, whole thing. And, and you can't project onto a, what's a three-month extension 
a second referendum because you can't have a second referendum in, in three months. So at the moment you can talk loosely about an extension, but once we got to the point where this was something that Parliament was taking into its own hands to try to bring about, it has to have some specific content. And I should say Kenneth Armstrong wrote earlier this week, so before some of these moves happened, a very interesting blog, we'll tweet the link to it, where he essentially said the key question now is three months or two years around the extension, that actually in a way that has become a version of the choice if if May's deal doesn't pass, that you're one or other side of that divide, you cannot straddle that divide. I think that's probably right. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the cataclysmic effect of voting down her deal. I mean, as things stand, that is the only deal around. Everything that she's done, including delaying voting on it, has been intended to maximise the possibilities that this thing will get through. There isn't an alternative plan of any kind whatsoever on either side. The ERG don't have a plan. The Labour Party doesn't have a plan that seems to be able to command a majority. It is, this is it. And if it's voted down, then this kind of sequencing, I think, itself may break down. I mean, then all hell breaks loose. All bets are off. In which case, yes, there is the rhythm of sort of these votes, but um, the real question is, what on earth do we do? And I would be genuinely surprised if it doesn't go through this time round. I mean, I have to say, I know this is... um not everyone's going to agree with this. And I'm not sure I kind of am convinced that it would play out like this. But logically, I think the only possibilities we have now are Theresa May's deal passes or a general election. I genuinely do not see how you get to anything else that has a chance of passing this parliament. Therefore, the parliament has to be replaced. The thing that complicates it is recent polling that just might tempt some conservatives, although they're not going to want to do it with Theresa May as their leader, into the thought, you know, this is a good opportunity to break the Labour Party once and for all. And and the Conservative Party always has at the back of their mind the thought that maybe we should seize our moment to break the Labour Party. But I don't think that there is an appetite for a general election, and therefore I tend to agree with Chris that once you've ruled everything else out, however improbable the thing that's left is, it's the thing that will happen. Her deal may well pass. Well, I agree. I mean, I thought... Someone has to disagree. I've, well, no, because I thought... Because it probably won't pass. I thought for a long time and said so, you know, more times than I care to remember on here, that I think that the Drawal Agreement and the Political Declaration have got a higher chance of passing. I have to say, both of you have actually fairly consistently said that. Uh, but I think that where I disagree with your logic is, is is that it leaves the EU out of the picture. And you know, it's not something that is simply going to be determined by what happens internally within British politics between the parliamentary... Um, arithmetic and the calculations about election because there is a cliff edge that's being created by the nature of article 50 and then there is the possibility of an extension that has to be agreed to by the european union and it has to be agreed to it is pretty clear in some specific terms it can't be some open-ended extension for british politics to carry on not even muddling through but whatever kind of the scenario would be theresa may says her deal fails all hell breaks loose the cabinet starts to break apart. She says, I'm calling an election, calling the bluff of the opposition who then go along with it. She then goes to the EU and says, we need an extension so that we can have an election. Does the EU say no, no election, no deal? No, it doesn't. I don't think it does. Well, it may I'm not... I'm not saying that's going to happen, but there is a scenario I'm in which that saying, does work. I'm not saying that um, whether the EU would necessarily agree to that or not, but one thing is I think I'm pretty certain about is is that the EU would extract considerable price for agreeing to such a thing. And then Theresa May has to bear that in mind when she makes the judgment about whether to go down this um, path or not. But in any case, they would, because if her deal is off, 
then negotiations themselves grind back to a much earlier stage where a lot of things that were settled in the withdrawal agreement are no longer settled questions. So in any case, if the scenario of rejecting her deal, which then triggers a a complete unravelling and does lead us to a, a general election which would require an extension of Article 50, negotiations have to start again, basically. I don't think this would necessarily dampen you know, the move to extend Article 50, but pretty obvious that the UK wouldn't have the same deal at the end of the negotiations that it has yeah, And if you look at the two governments that have thus far basically stuck their head off the parapet to say, you know, you can't just think you're going to get an extension, the French government and the Spanish government, they both have something they were clearly unhappy with in regard to the withdrawal agreement. In the French case, fishing rights, and in the Spanish case, Gibraltar. So it, I think it's just pie in the sky to think that those issues aren't going to come back into play at a point in which the British government out or the British Parliament out of a moment of weakness asked for an extension. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm sure some people would think, that we are being too dismissive of the possibility of a second referendum, given things that have happened, that have garnered a lot of headlines in the past couple of weeks. So the breakaway of the independent group, which which is effectively a second referendum group, which then leads in a sequence to Labour not radically changing its position, I think it has to be said, but moving certainly in the way it phrases that position more closely to the possibility of advocating and whipping for a second referendum. And yet the three of us, I think, still feel that not that much has changed, that this parliament could not legislate for a second referendum. Are we right? I mean, why are we so sure about that? It's a weird question to ask, given that I'm one of the people who thinks it, but why are we so sure about that? Is it is it simply the parliamentary arithmetic? I mean, in my own mind, I think it is that. I think it's a little bit more than that. I think um, I was struck by how forcefully the Financial Times came out in favour of a second referendum, as if this was just, you know, the the natural next step. All their columnists have lined up again in favour of it. I think it's partly the parliamentary arithmetic. I think it's also the nature of the Labour Party as it currently stands and its leadership. I was quite struck by Corbyn's move here to sort of much more clearly endorse uh, a second referendum. The reason why I think he did it is that he doesn't think it's ever going to happen. In some ways, it has some reputational cost to the Labour Party, because it may be that in the minds of voters, when it comes to voting in a general election, they will remember that this was a party that did say very clearly that it supported in principle and may seek to achieve a a second referendum. I don't think within the leadership there is a feeling that this is really going to happen. It was a concession extracted from them in an attempt to internally stabilise a very destabilised party. And the the endorsement of it is incredibly lukewarm. It's not as if they're going to go out of their way to make this happen. So if the only party that really stands for it does so in such a lukewarm way with the feeling, I think, a strong feeling that it's never really going to, you know, nobody's really going to call their bluff on it, then I think that tells us a lot. What about the possibility of a referendum 
the proposal for a referendum on May's deal or remain, May's deal having passed. Is there any way you get to that? Because I assume once May's deal has passed, there's no reason for the government to agree to such a thing and you can't agree to such a thing before May's deal has passed. I can't see that. And I think that Chris is right is, is the, the parliamentary arithmetic simply isn't there. And it's interesting as to why the parliamentary arithmetic isn't there. It isn't there because you haven't got quite enough people on the Conservative side. You get basically, the DUP won't support a second referendum. So maybe you can get 20 Conservative MPs who would so you've got plus 10 if you look at the the governing coalition so to speak at, at the moment but that's cancelled out straight away on the labor side by the numbers of people you know who may be getting up towards 100 i would say who are going to not vote for a second referendum it doesn't mean they're going to vote for theresa may's or that they want to vote if they have to for theresa may's um withdrawal agreement and i was struck by two things this week i think it was one of the mps for Barnsley, who'd written in her local newspaper, had not really said much about Brexit before, but making clear there wasn't any circumstances in, in which she was going to vote for a second referendum. So you've got very quiet Labour backbenchers who've basically been flushed out by Corbyn's nudging the, the party's official um, position along. And then you've got someone like Stephen Kinnock, you know, who's been very involved with the you know Yvette Cooper, Nick Bowles side of things, very committed to Common Market 2 or whatever, Norway Plus Plus or whatever they're calling it, who's saying publicly he's got deep reservations about a second referendum. So if you can't even pull people like Stephen Kinnock along with you to this sort of new Labour position, I just can't see where the votes are coming from. And then you've got to add on the fact that you've actually got to agree some specific things about this referendum in order to get it through Parliament. And they're going to be incredibly difficult to agree. And one of them is going to be, is well, what are the consequences of not having no deal taken off when there is a reasonable section of the British electorate that at least according to opinion polls are saying that they would vote for that and even someone like Caroline Flint is saying well there's a problem there because there's disenfranchisement of certain voters it looks like it's stacked in favour of Remain there isn't actually a way of doing this that gets round that um, problem so I, I think that it, it's, it is partly the parliamentary arithmetic but it is also because there's actually a, a structural difficulty with how you actually make the second referendum work in practice the other thing that Kenneth said that he was struck in the vote this week by the really decisive rejection of the Labour amendment. Now, there are sort of partisan reasons for that. But it's also the case that there probably is, in a free vote, a parliamentary majority for a softer Brexit, I think. So I agree, not that many Conservative MPs want a second referendum, but quite a lot would like a, a softer Brexit of some kind. And likewise, on the Labour side, there are a lot there doesn't seem any way of pulling those two sides together. I mean, that I agree with Kenneth. That seems to have been crystallised in a way this week. You know, if, if Labour proposes it, the Conservative Party will unite against it. But that's been the story, I think, really of the last uh, three months or so. I think it's been, you know, since May's deal was rejected, the idea that the way you would get something through would be a kind of cross-party coming together of minds around a, a different version of Brexit has always come up against the limits of, for the moment, the strengths of party identification, the calculations about how you vote. Um, and May, I think, has simply become aware that all she can do is try and get her deal through with her own party. And it's about playing different parts of that party off in a way that makes them eventually accept her deal. On the Labour Party side, I think, it's, I think Helen's absolutely right that there isn't enough of a 
of a will within the Parliamentary Labour Party to push on a second referendum. You have a much more fragmented set of attitudes. And the whole Corbyn strategy has been, I think, to tacitly edge Brexit over the line without ever being associated with it in order to then be able to move on. That to, seems to me the Labour To edge strategy. a Tory Brexit over the line. That's right. And to be dis- disassociated with it, but also to make it possible to happen and then to move on. I think it's also unclear what the people who say that they want Parliament to get to a softer Brexit are trying to achieve. Because the withdrawal agreement itself isn't about whether it's a hard or a soft Brexit. It's only about what's in the political declaration. And the political declaration still contains a considerable number of possibilities. Now, if one of the things that the people who want what they're calling a softer Brexit want is a a permanent customs um, union, well, there's nothing actually in the political declaration that rules that out as a possibility, not least because the backstop is based on a customs union. And the first version of the um, agreement that came out in relation to the backstop was that that was going to be the basis of the further discussions about the trade relationship or that will be the starting place for it. So in one sense, the amount of change that those people, and I'm using Nick Bowles as an example, actually want to the political declaration in terms of getting where that they want to get to into the future isn't actually that much. We always think we're going to record a podcast soon that will be the one when we actually know what's happened. We actually thought today's one might be that one, and it wasn't. So we are going to talk about this probably in two weeks' time after something has really moved. But I just want to finish with one question, and I'm sure we'll pick up on this. So Theresa May is um, a remarkable politician in many ways, and the last three months have been extraordinary. And if she does get her deal through, it will be... I mean, however you phrase it, it will be, I mean, I'm using this in a kind of neutral way, it'll be a remarkable achievement. I mean, an, an astonishing thing to have done, for better or for worse. But it will be at the price. She has poisoned relationships between herself and her, particularly her members of her government. I mean, everything that you hear that's coming out of it, it's absolutely toxic in there. And yet, in a way, she's she's sort of recovered some of her standing in the country, I think. Certainly, if she gets this deal through, there will be a certain kind of iron lady respect for her, or put it in Weberian terms, drilling through hard boards, respect for her. And yet the government, it's been held together by just the thought that this week, next week, next week. But if something finally goes over the line, it could easily fall apart then, couldn't it? Some of the newspaper coverage in the last week about people's attitudes to her inside the government, including from some of her previous supporters, it's it's vicious. And a lot of it is about her refusal to take no deal off the table, which they see as a sort of a unforgivable act of political brinkmanship. Actually, I have to say more of it is about the way she's done it, actually, that you know, there seems to be some kind of interpersonal breakdown. It's not just people complain that she doesn't listen and she's rude, apparently, and extraordinarily sort of intolerant and so on. But actually, people almost, they can't bear to be around her. Maybe from her perspective, she's almost had enough. That's the other possibility. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if a deal goes through, I think it may be that that opens up a bit of space for things to move on. I don't know what her position would be and how long she'd last. I mean, these things are difficult to tell. But um, I've been a little bit surprised by that, to be honest. It may be that just as they get very close, she has, you know, found that these people have been so difficult to manage and deal with and have been so unwilling to back her in an unconditional way that she is beginning to have had enough and has started to be pretty short with people. And yet it's also working tactically in that she held her cabinet together this week clearly in a meeting where there was a lot of leaking that everyone came out of that meeting thoroughly miserable but no one quit 
well, that's a win for Theresa May. I, I think that it will be a strange story that will be told about her in the future because she, in one sense, is somebody who is entirely unsuited to be leading the Conservative Party, let alone being British Prime Minister. Her personality is just not what you would put into either, the, say, that particular political party or into political leadership in the kind of times in, in which we live. And I mean by that in relation to communication rather than in relation to substance. So she's, you know, she's a very, very odd leader. On the other hand, in some sense, some of her weaknesses become her strengths in dealing with a particular situation in which she found herself in relation to Brexit. So in some sense, her pig-headed dogginess of just like carrying on and absorbing essentially blow after blow if she succeeds in getting the withdrawal agreement through it will be actually through those qualities that can be seen very negatively or have a strange positiveness in the political context in which she's operating I think though the other thing we should probably bear in mind and it's quite hard to keep focus on this given everything else that is being going on it is also really quite remarkable I think that a party that has been in power in one way or another for nine years or getting on for nine years now is still like regularly ahead in the opinion polls <laughs> you know, it's not something I mean if you think where the Thatcher government was by the point that it had been in, in power nine years or even where um, Labour was in the, the last couple of years of Gordon Brown's premiership you're talking about parties that were like 20% behind in the polls and you've also had a, a story, a very complicated story about the economy, which it's possible to tell in a, in a rather negative way and say, well, it is pretty surprising that you've had the same party in government in one way or another for nine years through all this economic difficulties, not least stagnant um, wages. On the other hand, you can tell the story in a rather positive way about employment and the increase in the number of jobs, particularly if you make some comparisons with other European economies. So there probably are some kind of some aspects of the economic conditions that are actually propping this government up as well. I think as soon as she's done, though, one way or the other with Brexit, it's clear that the Conservative Party will replace her because they do not have any tolerance in a deep sense for her being leader any longer. So we've learnt not to be super confident about what we'll be talking about next week in the current climate, but I'm going to take a stab at it. I think next week we're going to be talking about the Labour Party, the independent group, and the future of two-party politics in Britain. And I think the week after, we're going to be talking about the fate of Theresa May's deal and that we might actually then have reached the beginning of the endgame. Do join us for those. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.